0: we find ourselves in the middle of the very heart of the book of Joshua. We often think of Joshua and, uh, and recall uh, the miraculous crossing of the Jordan. We recall the battles with Jericho and the deception of the Gibeonites. But it's clear that for the author, and therefore for his original audience, the heart of the book has to do with the doling out by lot of Israel's inheritance tribe by tribe. It's the largest section in the book. It's the most um, ornately structured. And as we'll see tonight, it culminates in what is clearly the key verse of the entire book of Joshua. Okay. What we'll do next week, as we close out with the last few chapters, Uh, is kind of the conclusion of the book. But we're really finishing off the heart, and we're in the middle of a section where the land has been allotted, and it's basically in three different parts. First, we saw last week a review of the land that was already given to the two and a half tribes on the east side of the River Jordan. And then where we were last week was focusing on um, the inheritance given specifically to the tribes of Judah uh, and Manasseh, which take up the large portion of the land and also um, kind of play a significant role in the north and in the south uh, of the land as a whole. Tonight, we will look at the Uh, the inheritance given to the other seven tribes, the seven remaining tribes, as well as the cities that uh, are given to Levi as they are scattered across the nation. Um, They don't receive an inheritance because the Lord is their inheritance. And so here in chapter 18, verse 1, then the whole congregation of the people of Israel assembled at Shiloh, and set up the tent of meeting there, the land laid subdued before them." Now that's a transition in the book. Up to this point, the gathering place, before and after battle, between every major scene of the book has been in a place called Gilgal. But now they resettle in Shiloh, and in doing so, they set up the tabernacle in its semi-permanent position. It will remain here, until David conquers Jerusalem and brings it from this place, Shiloh. And so this becomes, if you will, the spiritual center of Israel. Now, if you were with us in the study of Deuteronomy, a repeated phrase of Deuteronomy is that eventually the tabernacle would be set up in a place, quote, the Lord will choose for himself. For the time being, that's Shiloh. And so this becomes, if you will, the new headquarters for the nation of Israel. And it's from here we see in verse 2. There remained among the people of Israel seven tribes whose inheritance had not yet been apportioned. So Joshua said to the people of Israel, How long will you put off going in to take possession of the land which the Lord your God of your fathers has given you? Provide three men from each tribe, and I will send them out, that they may set out and go up and down the land. They shall write a description of it with a view to their inheritance, and then come to me. They shall divide it into seven portions. Judah shall continue in his territory on the south, and the house of Joseph, that's Manasseh, shall continue in his territory on the north. And you shall describe the land, the rest of the land, in seven divisions and bring the descriptions here to me, and I will cast lots for you here before the Lord your God. And so he says, all right, there's still more land to be taken. It needs to be apportioned in seven pieces, and so they take... Uh, Once again, a group of spies, we could probably better label these spies cartographers, they're not military spies, they're trying to get a lay of the land to proportion it out in a way that's suitable for the seven remaining tribes, and so uh, Joshua calls them to go out to see the land, to divide it into seven portions, and then come back to me, and we will cast lots before the Lord. Um, and so he says uh, at verse 7, reminding us here the Levites have no portion among you, for the priesthood of the Lord is their heritage. And Gad and Reuben and the half tribe of Manasseh have received their inheritance beyond the Jordan eastward, which Moses, the servant of the Lord, gave them. Once again, we see a concern to show us that all the bases have been covered, that all of the tribes are represented and that their word God has given them is fulfilled for each and every one. One of the major contrasts between the book of Joshua and the book of Judges is unity. In Joshua, the nation is unified. They're unified under a single leader. All of the tribes work together in warfare and then each one is given their allotment just as promised. But in Judges... Because, as the author says, there was no king in Israel and everyone did what was right in their own eyes. What we get are little skirmishes in different tribes across the nation at different times. It's not until under the leadership of Samuel that, once again, the armies of Israel are gathered together and unified, okay? But here we can see over and over again, the author wants us to think about all the tribes of Israel, which includes not just the 12 sons of Israel, but also the two half-tribes making up one of these sons, Manasseh and Ephraim. And so we've yet to come to a description of the land that doesn't remind us of the ones they've already covered to keep the math straight. Okay, so verse 8, the men arose and went And Joshua charged those who went to write up the description of the land saying, go up and down in the land and write a description and return to me and I will cast lots for you here before the Lord in Shiloh. Notice the repetition in verse 8. We just read that word for word. The only difference here is now it's put active. Here's what Joshua commanded. Here's what the people did according to the commandment of Joshua. The emphasis, of course, is one of full obedience. Verse 9, so the men went and passed up and down in the land and wrote in a book a description of it by towns in seven divisions. Then they came up to Joshua to the camp at Shiloh, and Joshua cast lots for them in Shiloh before the Lord. And there Joshua apportioned the land of the people of Israel to each tribe his portion. So this kind of fulfills the introduction for the final section of the inheritance of the land. And I want you to notice a major theme in this little passage right here, which is the presence of the Lord, okay? And so we're told specifically that this happens in Shiloh when the tabernacle is set back up. And then we have a reminder here that in the casting of lots, that that's God's sovereign hand and decision-making that is going to dole out the land accurately and appropriately to the remaining tribes. That's another major theme of the book of Joshua, is that God is in their midst, working for them, accomplishing these things. We'll see how that culminates at the end tonight. And so what happens next in the book is, tribe by tribe, the seven remaining inheritance are listed. And like we saw last week, we'll find two sections of material here, okay? Some of them are going to be boundary descriptions, that kind of walk around the edges of these inheritance. And then there's also going to be a contents description, which lists all of the towns and cities that make up the major points of reference within the territory that's given out. Again, as we saw last week, some of these city names you'll recognize from other places in the Bible. Most you won't, okay? From the entire uh, beginning back in chapter 15, All the way through here, the entire uh, description of the inheritance of the 12 tribes of Israel. About half of the cities we know. About half of them we know from other places in the Bible. But quite a few of them, being ancient before the rest of history takes place, are to us just names. But so significant uh, to Israel that they're recorded one by one. And so we begin with the tribe of Benjamin, verse 11. The lot of the tribe of the people of Benjamin, according to its clans, came up and the territory allotted to it fell between the people of Judah and the people of Joseph. Okay, so remember, Judah is in the south. Matt, if you still have access to that map, go ahead and throw it up. If you don't, it's fine. Judah is in the south and then Manasseh is in the north. And so we're talking about the the dead center, if you will, of Israel here. That's where Benjamin ends up. So on the north side, their boundary begins at the Jordan River, and then the boundary goes up the shoulder north of Jericho, then up through the hill country westward, and it ends at the wilderness of Beth-Avon. From there, the boundary passes along southward in the direction of Luz, to the shoulder of Luz, that is Bethel. Then the boundary goes down to Adaroth-Adar, on the mountain that lies south of lower Beth-Horon. Then the boundary goes in another direction, turning on the western side southward from the mountain that lies to the south, opposite Beth Horon. Now, I want you to notice the way these descriptions are described are um, eye of the beholder descriptions. They're from the perspective of somebody walking the line. Do you see that? And so it says, when you get to this point, you turn westward and you walk this far. Why? Why? because these are the descriptions from the spies, from the cartographers who went out, and so they've traced these boundaries. So if you look at the, at the map up there, it's almost impossible to see But Judah is the big blue one in the south. Manasseh is the green one about halfway up. And then in the middle of them is actually three tribes. And the smallest one, which is kind of yellow, is Benjamin. So it it starts uh, just a little bit west of the Dead Sea. And it just fills in a little pocket there. That's what we're reading about right now. Um, Picking up again, um, opposite Beth Horon. This is in verse 14. And it ends at Kiriath Baal, that is Jirim, a city belonging to the people of Judah. This forms the western side. And the southern side begins at the outskirts of Kiriath-Jerim, and the boundary goes from there to Ephron, to the spring waters of Nephtha, and the boundary goes down the border of the mountain that overlooks the valley of the sun of Hinnom, which is at the north end of the valley of Rephim. And it goes down to the valley of Hinnom, south of the shoulder of the Jebusites, downwards to Enrogel. Now, if you're recognizing a couple of those places, that's because we're brushing up against Jerusalem, which is uh, where the Jebusites are. Okay? Uh, And that's also why there's so many valleys there. It's hill country, verse 17. Then it bends in a northerly direction going on into Enshemesh, and from there it goes to Gilead, which is opposite of the uh, ascent of Adumim. Then it goes down to the stone of Bohan, the son of Reuben. And passing on to the north of the shoulder of Bethabara, it goes down to Ereba. And then the boundary passes on the north shoulder of Beth-Hagla. And the boundary ends at the northern bay of the Salt Sea, which again is the Dead Sea. At the south end of the Jordan, this is the southern border. The Jordan forms its boundary on its eastern side. This is the inheritance of the people of Benjamin. According to their clans boundary by boundary, all around. And so the boundary description is given, and then the contents description is given. Here are the significant cities within this territory. The cities of the tribe of the people of Benjamin, according to their clans, were Jericho, beth Hagla, Emek-Kezes, Beth-Arabah, Zemarim, Bethel, Avim, Parah, Opara, Shepharam-Moni, Ophni, Geba, twelve cities with their villages. Gibeon, Ramah, Biroth, Mizpah, Chephirah, Mosa, Rechim, Epril, Terala, Zela, Halif, Jebus, that is Jerusalem, Gibeah, and Kiriath Jerim, 14 cities with their villages. This is the inheritance of the people of Benjamin according to his clans. Now, another thing we should keep in mind that the author is doing here is he's also setting up the stage for the rest of the drama of Israel. And so some of these names are significant, like it mentioned Luz, that is Bethel. That place is significant in Genesis, right? This is the place that is renamed by Jacob as being the house of God, this place that he just camps in the middle of the wilderness and discovers that, uh, you know, Jacob's ladder, discovers that God is present there and he renames it Bethel. And so some of this is a carryover, but other portions of it are laying out Um, the geography of the rest of Israel's history and so you'll recognize places from the times of David and of Saul and it's pretty clear that the author has that intention he's getting us familiar if you will with the lay of the land and so Benjamin comes out sounding pretty usual Simeon on the other hand is relatively unique read with me in chapter 19 verse 1 The second lot came out for Simeon, for the tribe of the people of Simeon, according to their clans, and their inheritance was in the midst of the inheritance of the people of Judah. Okay? That's what makes Simeon's inheritance unique. If you look at the map, it's the hole in the donut of Judah. Right? It's right there in the middle. In fact, what we find here um, is not... A boundary list, but a collection of cities that are given, and so even that map's a little bit misleading because Simeon doesn't have its own territory, and Judah has lost it. They settle with Judah, in Judah's territory, and are assigned particular cities that actually initially, if you go back and read, many of which were already mentioned as being Judah's territory. And so it continues here, and it says, verse two, they had for their inheritance Beersheba, Sheba, Molada, Hazar Shual, Bela, Ezim, Eltadad, Bethul, Horma, Ziklag, Beth, Marakaboth, Hazar Susa, Beth, Lobayath, and Shaurun, thirteen cities with their villages, Ain, Riman, Ether, Ashen, four cities with their villages, together with all the villages of these cities as far as Baleth Bear and Rama of the Negev, this was the inheritance of the tribes of the people of Simeon, according to their clans. Now if you are reading this for the first time, you're scratching your head and going, Wait, what? And then we're given an explanation. It says in verse nine, the inheritance of the people of Simeon formed part of the territory of the people of Judah because the portion of the people of Judah was too large for them. The people of Simeon obtained an inheritance in the midst of their inheritance. And so what we're told here is that Judah had so much territory, they had room and Simeon settled in the midst. Now there is another perspective to consider, okay? And that goes all the way back to Genesis 49. Now, we're going to reference Genesis 49 a couple of times tonight. You could also look at the final prophetic words of Moses for the 12 tribes and then see how many of these things are fulfilled right here and now in the in the casting of lots for the inheritance of Israel. We'll touch on a few tonight. There are other places in Israel's history where some of this stuff prophetically comes to bear later, but some of it we start to see here. And one of those places has to do ...with Simeon. So if you go back and you look at Genesis chapter 49... ...here Jacob is speaking over his sons... ...and he's both blessing them and then also prophesying over them. He starts to dip into the future of what's going to happen in Israel... And he speaks of two particular sons, Simeon and Levi. Now, if you don't remember the prequel to this, these are the two brothers who plot. These are the two brothers who plot in Shechem to avenge Dinah and wipe out an entire village. That's who we're talking about here. And so he says, looking back on that and looking forward to the generations that will follow, Simeon and Levi are brothers, weapons of violence are their swords. Let my soul not come into their counsel. O my glory, be not joined to their company, for in their anger they killed men, and in their willfulness they hamstrung oxen. Cursed be their anger, for it is fierce, and their wrath, for it is cruel. And then notice what it says. I will divide them in Jacob. I will scatter them in Israel. And so we're told all the way back through the mouth of Jacob, their forefather, that Levi and Simeon will not actually receive their own inheritance. Okay? Now, the way this plays out is actually pretty different for both tribes. Simeon, as we just saw, ends up settling and intermingling in the midst of Judah's territory. Levi becomes the priesthood and receives no land allotment at all and instead is given 48 cities across the 12 tribes' land, Uh, and settles there, okay? And so here, all the way back in the book of Genesis, we have the um, foretaste of what we're reading now that happens in the inheritance. But notice, as we read it in Joshua, it's not described in reference to that. It still nonetheless ends up fulfilling that, okay? So that's Simeon, and the next one we have is Zebulon. Now, if you're looking at a map Uh, Zebulon is the bluish one on the north end, and so we have pink Asher on the coast there, and then Zebulon, and then Naphtali, Uh, and then beneath Naphtali in the yellow is Issachar, okay? Those are the ones we're going to focus on right now, and so Zebulon is given in verse 10. The third lot came up for the people of Zebulon, according to their clans, and the territory of their inheritance reached as far as Sarid, then their boundary goes up westward and on to Mariel and touches Dabasheth, then the brook that is east of Jochanim. From Sarid it goes in the other direction, eastward towards the sunrise, to the boundary of Chisloth-Tabor. From there it goes to Dabareth, then up to Japhia. From there it passes along to the east, towards the sunrise, to Gath-Hefer, to Eth-Kazin, and then going on to Rimmon, it bends towards Neah. Then on the north boundary it turns about to Hanathon, and it ends at the valley of Iphithel. And Kittath, Nahal, Shimron, Adalah, and Bethlehem, twelve cities with their villages, this is the inheritance of the people of Zebulon, according to their clans, these cities and their villages. Pretty simple. Now I want you to notice that the descriptions have shrunk. It took us an entire evening, about two hours, to walk through all of Judah and Manasseh's inheritance. And when you look at the map, you can see part of the reason that is, is because they're sizably larger. Um, But also, they're more significant for the story that follows. And so, Issachar, small territory, uh, small section. So, verse 17, the fourth lot came out for Issachar, for the people of Issachar, according to their clans, their territory included Jezreel, Chesheloth, Shunem, Hathrium, Sihon, Anarath, Rabbith, Kishon, Ebez, Remeth, Enganim, Ed-Hadad, Beth-Pezez. The boundary also touches Tabor, Shash-Zuzama, and Beth-Shemesh, and its boundary ends at the Jordan, 16 cities with their village. This is the inheritance of the tribe of people of Issachar, according to their clans, in the cities with their villages. And so once again, uh, we can see uh, Issachar, there just south of Zebulun, pushing towards the bottom of the Sea of Galilee and bordering the River Jordan. And then we have Asher. The fifth lot, verse 24, came out for the tribe of the people of Asher according to their clans. Their territory included Hecath, Hali, Beton, Ashaphath, Alamelech, Ahmad, Mishael. On the west, it touches Carmel and Sihor Libnath. Then it turns eastward and goes to Beth Dagon and touches Zebulon. Uh, now, side note there, Zebulon, when it mentions that, that's the tribe. It touches the boundary we've already seen for Zebulon. That's what it means there. And the valley of Ithathel, north to emek and Neel, and it continues north to Kabul. Ebron, Rahab, Haman, Cana, as far as Sidon the Great. Then the boundary returns at Ramah, reaching to the fortified cities of Tyre. Then the boundary turns to Hosea and it ends at the sea, Malahab, Aqib is, uh, Akzib, Uma, Aphek, and Rehob, 22 cities and their villages. Now you may have na- noticed the name of a city there, um, Kabul. Kabul is of note, interestingly, because when David builds uh, his, uh, sorry, when Solomon builds his temple, he hires a woodsman, a workman, from Tyre. Okay, from this same area. And he gives him some of these cities and they're all in this region that's just labeled by that time Kabul, okay? Um, And so we notice Tyre is mentioned there as well. Okay, and so uh, verse 31, this is in the inheritance of the people of Asher according to their clans, these cities with their villages. And then we get Naphtali. Uh, Now, Naphtali is the orange one which starts at the Sea of Galilee and works north from there um, touching the east west boundary uh, formed by the river Jordan of Israel. And so, Naphtali, verse 32, the sixth lot came out for the people of Naphtali, for the people of Naphtali, according to their clans. And their boundary ran from Heleph, from the oak in Zanazim, and Adam, Nicob, and Jabneel as far as Lachem, and it ended at the Jordan. Then the boundary turns westward to asnath Tabor, and goes from there to Hukuk, touching Zebulon at the south, and Asher on the west. And Judah at the east of the Jordan. The fortified cities are Zidim, Zer, Hamath, Rakheth, Shinnereth, Admah, Ramah, Hazor, Kadesh, Edri, Yiron, Horem, and Hazor, Yiron, Migdal, El, Horam, Beth Anath, and Beth Shemesh, 19 cities with their villages. This is the inheritance of the tribe of the people of Naphtali according to their clans and their cities with their villages. Now that we've looked at Zebulon and Naphtali, we can set the stage for something else, and this we find in the book of Isaiah. Isaiah chapter 9 is a prophecy of Jesus, a prophecy of the Messiah, and notice what it tells us here. But there will be no gloom for her who was in anguish. In the former time, he brought contempt on the land of Zebulon and the land of Naphtali. But in the latter time, he has made it glorious by the way of the sea, the land beyond the Jordan, Galilee of the nations. Okay, And so Isaiah here is talking about something that's going to go down in Zebulon, in Naphtali, by the way of the sea, um, which is a reference to this road that moves between the uh, Mediterranean Sea and the Sea of Galilee, still there today. Uh, and then it calls it Galilee, which is probably ringing some bells. Notice what he says next, verse 26. The people who have walked in darkness have seen a great light. Those who dwell in the land of deep darkness, on them the light has shined. You've multiplied the nation. You've increased its joy. They rejoice before you as with the joy at harvest. There's glad when they divide the spoil for the yoke of his burden. And the staff of his shoulder and the rod of his oppressor you have broken, as on the day of Midian. Side note, that's a reference to the book of Judges. We'll read that story next month. For every boot of trampling warrior in the battle tumult and every garment rolled in blood will be burned as fuel for the fire. And here we go. For unto us a child is born, to us a son is given, and the government shall be upon his shoulder, and his name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, prince of peace of the increase of his government and peace there will be no end on the throne of david and over his kingdom to establish it and uphold it with justice and righteousness from this time forth forevermore the zeal of the lord of hosts will do this and so there's this great promise of the coming of the messiah the descendant of david who um, God will establish the government on his shoulders, the one who is the mighty God himself, who is the wonderful counselor. And that word there for wonderful, pele, is never used of a human being in the entirety of the Old Testament, okay? Uh, In the same way, that word there for mighty is never used, okay? Never used of a human being. The word there for everlasting never used of a human being and all of these titles are applied to the child that is born to the son that is given and where where is he going to be born in the land of Zebulun in Naphtali in the region of Galilee okay that's where his ministry will be and that's where Jesus spends the first half of his ministry okay so just just for context just for setting going back to the book of Joshua the final inheritance we see here is for the tribe of Dan and Dan is also unique on the list okay notice what it says in verse 40 the seventh lot came out for the tribe of the people of Dan according to their clans and the territory of its inheritance included Zorah, Eshtal, Irshemesh Shababin, Ajalon uh, Ithla Elon, Timnah Ekron, Elterketh, Gibbethon, Baleth, Jeod, Benebarak Gathrimmon, and Mayjarkon, and Rakan with the territory over against Joppa, okay? Now, Joppa's a good reference point. Joppa is uh, relatively close to modern-day Tel Aviv, okay? And so it's right on the Mediterranean Sea. Um, and so you can see, Dan, just at the northern border of Judah. It's the orange one underneath Ephraim. However, notice what it says here in verse 47, When the territory of the people of Dan was lost to them, the people of Dan went up and fought against Leshem, and after capturing it and striking it with the sword, they took possession of it and settled in it, calling Leshem Dan after the name of Dan, their ancestor. This is the inheritance of the tribe of the people of Dan, according to their clans, these cities with their villages. Now, this story that it mentions here of a time when Dan loses their inheritance is not two things, okay? One, it's not during the time of Joshua, okay? It doesn't happen right here, right now. Uh, Two, it's not actually that far off. This takes place in the book of Judges. It's referenced both in Judges chapter 1 and then the whole sordid story of it is told in Judges chapter 18. And so we won't turn there tonight because we'll be there next Month. But what we're told here is that Dan can't even hold their inheritance, and so they end up resettling. And let's just be honest here, that settling into a single city in the surrounding area and giving it the name of your inheritance, Dan, is not the same thing. God had an entire territory for Dan, but because of both their unbelief and then, as we'll see, their extreme religious rebellion against God, their total apostasy, they end up settling for a city of their own creation. Instead of the territory of Dan, they just have the town of Dan that they've named for themselves, okay? In the inheritance of Israel, Dan plays the part of Esau, who sells their inheritance, you know, for red stew. They just settle, settle for something so much less than God had for them. But we're told the story right here to prep us for the reality of what happens. And so we need to recognize that this map we're looking at here and this description we're reading here is idealistic, not in the sense that it was impossible for Israel to maintain or to obtain, but here there's still battles to be fought. They're still enemies in the land. Israel, as a unified army, has gone in and done the majority of the work, but now the tribes are going to break into their own parties, and they're responsible now for these territories. And as we saw over and over again with Judah and Manasseh last week, um, they will, in many places, not be able to overcome the enemies, or they'll settle for putting them into perpetual servitude. And just as Moses promised in the book of Deuteronomy, the people then will become a thorn in their side and lead them to apostasy. So that finishes off the inheritance for all of the tribes. First, for the ones that were given in the days of Moses to the two and a half tribes, Manasseh, Gad, and Ephraim on the east side of the river Jordan. And then in Canaan proper, we have uh, Judah, Manasseh, and the other seven tribes. Uh, Once again, we noticed this last week, remember that Manasseh gets a double portion. They get a portion on the east side, and then they actually spread into the land proper and take part of that land as well. Um, And here, as it closes, it closes with Joshua's inheritance in the same way that last week it began with Caleb's inheritance. And remember what these two men have in common. First off, they're the only people in Israel in their age bracket. They're the only survivors of their generation, the rest of whom died in the wilderness because of their unbelief, including Israel's leaders, Miriam, Aaron, and Moses, all for these things that happen over the course of those 40 years. Okay? And so they're both relatively old in their 80s, in fact, On top of that, they are the two faithful spies who went in as representatives of their own tribes along with ten other representatives of the other tribes to spy out the land and only Joshua and Caleb came back and gave a report that God can do this, that the land is good, that he uh, has promised these things and is able to fulfill it, etc., And so, as the inheritance is laid out in the book of Joshua, we have these two great examples at the beginning and the end. Not just are they worthy of their inheritance, and so their story is included, but they're wrapped around the story because one of the author of Joshua's major points is that God is still capable in the days that the book was written of fulfilling the promises that he has made. One of the repeated refrains we see throughout this book is, to this very day. It's said over and over again. So we discover, for example, um, that Rahab's family lives in the midst of Israel to this very day. We discover that the Gibeonites are still residing in Israel to this very day. We discover that the memorial stones that are set up uh, as, as Moses commanded in Deuteronomy are still visible to this very day. And so, when you couple that with the structure of this book, which is a evidence of the fact that God is faithful, the heart of the author, who, like again, uh, who again, I have suggested is probably Samuel, okay, the author laying behind the final version of Joshua, Judges, as well as very potentially First and Second Samuel. And so he's looking, and the message he wants to convey is not just the inheritance that God has given is good, but God is still faithful of fulfilling his promises, okay? And so here, Caleb in the beginning and Joshua upheld as those who believed in the promises of God. And so here in verse 49, when they had finished distributing the several territories of the land as inheritance the people of Israel gave an inheritance among them to Joshua the son of Nun. Now I like the way that that's worded because if you look back over the inheritance except for the two and a half tribes that were given their land by Moses Joshua is the primary actor of the last five chapters. He's the one who, by the casting of lots, along with Eleazar, is making the choice. He's the one who sends out the spies. He's the general who led the armies. But here, it's the people of Israel giving Joshua his portion. Okay. There's a responsiveness to Israel here. Um, there's a receptiveness to, um, to give Joshua his due. So, verse 50, by the command of the Lord, they gave him the city that he asked timnath sarah in the hill country of ephraim and he rebuilt the city and settled in it these are the inheritances that eleazar the priest and joshua the son of nun and the heads of the father's houses of the tribes of the people of israel distributed by lot at shiloh before the lord at the entrance of the tent of meeting so they finish dividing the land Many books of the Bible seem to have more than one ending. The biggest culprit is the book of Romans. Paul tries to close that book three times before he finally comes to his final conclusion. Joshua is kind of the same way. Like, the book could end there. But as much as the work is finished, it's not yet actually finished. And so what follows here are two more things that they are required to do as a unified nation under the leadership of Joshua to fulfill the words of Moses about the land. And those two things that are left that we'll look at tonight is, first, they're to set up cities of refuge. and second, they're to dole out uh, cities to the tribes of Levi, places for them to live, okay? And so that's what follows in chapters 20 and 21. So 20 verse 1, the Lord said to Joshua, say to the people of Israel, appoint the cities of refuge of which I spoke to you through Moses. And so he says, just like Moses said, it's time to appoint the cities of refuge. Now that Moses talked about this is almost an understatement, okay? This comes up in Exodus, it comes up in Numbers, it comes up in Deuteronomy. Over and over again, there is uh, There is law, legislation, and commandments given by Moses laid out for these cities of refuge, okay? And so here we have a short explanation of what they are in verse three, that the manslayer who strikes any person without intent or unknowingly may flee there. They shall be for you a refuge from the avenger of blood, okay? And so here's what these cities were for. This is how it's described in the book of Numbers, if a man is out in the woods, chopping wood with a friend, and his axe head flies off the handle and kills his friend accidentally, he is a valid, uh, a valid example of someone who can flee to these cities. It mentions here at the end, um, at the end of verse 3, the avenger of blood. Now, as a side note, Uh, This is related to a word that's very, very common in the Old Testament, known as the goal, okay? The goal is the kinsman redeemer, okay? The primary candidate or the best example of a kinsman redeemer is Boaz, right, who redeems the land of his clansmen and through that gains Ruth as a wife, okay? And he's fulfilling a family role laid out for Israel that we call the kinsman redeemer, okay? That word goal is tied here to blood, Okay, and so it's translated the avenger of blood. But what this is, is the family representative seeking justice for the death of a family member. That's what this person's role is. Okay? The recognition here is that there is a difference between, in, in very modern terms, murder and manslaughter. Okay? That's the difference that's being talked about here. What's significant is we see here that both of them are serious enough to be talked about, and this one is serious enough that there has to be, uh, there has to be, we'll see, atonement for this. It still requires something, and I actually really appreciate this because it gets us around an obstacle we always have as moderns, okay? which is recognizing that even when something is accidental or unintended, the consequences are still real. The truth is for these families whether this man was murdered or killed accidentally he's still dead. But actually the Bible pushes it even further than that and says that all death that's unnatural that's caused death whether by murder or by manslaughter is toxic to the land, bad for the relationship with the Lord. Okay? You may remember the first glimpse we get of this goes all the way back to Cain and Abel. Do you remember how God speaks to Cain after he murders his brother? He says, your brother's blood is crying out to me from the ground. Okay? It's crying out for justice. It's crying out for God to set things right. And so the recognition here puts um, even manslaughter on a significant level, but not equally with murder. It's different, it's recognized and so a way is made so that the person uh, has a way to appeal to a court system and avoid being prosecuted by this family who of course is relatively emotionally heated, right? Can, can we just imagine the, you did this on purpose that would just be natural with the emotions of loss, right? And so what is somebody who, to do there to flee to these cities of refuge? Okay, and so we're told what he's supposed to do in verse 4. He will flee to one of these cities and shall stand at the entrance of the gate of the city and explain his case to the elders of the city. Then they shall take him into the city and give him a place and he shall remain with them. Okay, and so this is kind of like uh, the concept of sanctuary. In fact, that idea itself comes from some other references in the Bible to people throwing themselves on the altar. This idea of them appealing to mercy because they've come into the tabernacle itself and have touched for themselves the bronze altar where the sacrifices are. Now, the Psalms tell us that if somebody has intentionally murdered, then they're to be pulled away from the altar and justice is to be done. But here he makes his case before the elders... And they, if they receive his case, then they come under his protection, okay? And they enter into the city, but that's not the whole story. Verse 5, if the avenger of blood pursues him, they shall not give up the manslayer into his hand because he struck his neighbor unknowingly and did not hate him in the past. And, listen to this, he shall remain in that city until he has stood before the congregation for judgment, until the death of him who is at the high priest of the time. Then the manslayer may return to his own town and his own home, okay, to the town of which he fled. And so we see his initial case at the gate is an appeal for an actual court case. And so the first thing is he'll stay in that city until his trial goes on and he's proven to be... Uh, innocent of intent. And then, even if he is proven to be innocent, he is now a resident of that city until the death, not of the Avenger of Blood, not his own death, until the death of the High Priest. Why? The only answer that commentators can come to is that the death of the High Priest is atoning for the death of. ...of the innocent. Okay. Remember that the high priest is anointed with oil... ...serves on behalf of Israel... ...is the one who's involved in the Day of Atonement. And so it's a life-for-life scenario... ...that sets right the unequal score. Okay. Now, it's no surprise... ...that all the New, although the New Testament doesn't speak of the cities of refuge as being an image of Jesus, we have a hard time shaking the comparison. Okay? This is the place where we flee. This is the place where we go to escape the consequences. Okay? But when we add in here the role of the high priest, then we have pretty solid grounds to make the connection because the high priest, according to the book of Hebrews, is very clearly a personification, a, uh, a shadow of what the Messiah would eventually do. And so the legislation is extensive on this, not just to maintain society, because people die accidentally all the time, um, because they're trying to stay unified, um, but also because it's pointing forward to and picturing this reality that we also experience. Think, if you will, Think, if you will, of Barabbas. Now, Barabbas is not an accidental killer. He's not there for manslaughter. He's on trial for murder. And Pilate, because he doesn't want to bring about unpopular justice, tries to come up with a ploy so that he cannot be the one who lets Jesus go and let him go all the same. And so he has a tradition every year during Passover that he lets go a political criminal. And he's got two very good candidates. Barabbas, who's part of a rebellion and a murderer, and Jesus. And so he's probably thinking in his own mind, it's clear which one they're going to pick, right? Jesus is a popular healer, preacher. You know, He has the crowds behind him and they present and the people clamor for Barabbas. And a murderer walks free. Now, I think one of the things that's always worth keeping in mind is that although there's a continuity between the laws of Israel and the sacrificial system and what Jesus came to do and what we need, there's also a clear betterness to Jesus. And I know that's not a word. I'm using it for a particular reason. It's because that is the favorite phrase of the author of Hebrews, that Jesus is better than moses that jesus is better than the high priest that he is a better tabernacle okay and so there's this significance in the reality of jesus that if we need a refuge place not because we've done something without intent or mistakenly or unknowingly but with every fiber of our being there's still a refuge for us there's still an escape there's still forgiveness So, they're to set apart these cities. Uh, Now, technically, three of them are to be in the two and a half tribes territory on the east and three are to be on the west. And so, verse 7, they set apart Kadesh in Galilee in the hill country of Naphtali, Shechem in the hill country of Ephraim, and Kiriath Arba, that is Hebron, in the hill country of Judah. So, two in the north and one in the south. And beyond the Jordan east of Jericho... So this is in the two and a half tribes. They appointed Bezer in the wilderness on the table land from the tribe of Reuben and Ramoth in Gilead from the tribe of Gan and Golan in Bashan from the tribe of Manasseh. These were the cities designated for all the people of Israel and for the stranger sojourning among them that anyone who killed a person without intent could flee there so that he might not die by the hand of the avenger of blood till he stood before the congregation. Okay, And so they set aside these cities. Now, if you're interested to study more about these cities, there's one factor here that's not told. There's to be three on each side of the river. On top of that, they're to be evenly distributed throughout the land. And then finally, they're to be on major roads so that they're not difficult to get to. Okay, And so these are the six cities that they choose. Now, interestingly enough these six cities are all part of the 48 cities we're about to read about that go to the tribe of Levi, okay? And the reason is probably pretty obvious because they are the ones who are going to be operating in consistently teaching and maintaining the law of Moses. And so the six cities they choose are also places that are given to the Levites to maintain because that's where part of their work is going to play out. So that's the last thing that needs to be done uh, uh, in the allotment is that the cities and the surrounding pasture lands need to be given to the tribes of Levi or to the clans of Levi. Verse 1 of chapter 21. Then the heads of the fathers' houses of the Levites came to uh, Eleazar the high priest and to Joshua the son of Nun and the heads of the fathers' houses, the tribes of the people of Israel. And they said to them at Shiloh in the land of Canaan, the Lord commanded through Moses that we be given cities to dwell in along with their pasture lands for our livestock. So by command of the Lord, the people of Israel gave to the Levites the following cities and pasture lands out of their inheritance. The lot came out for the clans of the Kohathites. So those Levites who were descendants of Aaron the priest received by lot from the tribes of Judah, Simeon and Benjamin, 13 cities. Okay, so notice what's happening here it's Levi's children divided up their descendants and they're given different lots in different territories of Israel. And so um, first it's the Kohathites and they get, tri- uh, they get cities in Judah in Simeon and Benjamin, a total of 13 cities. Verse five, the rest of the Kohathites received by lot from the clans of the tribe of Ephraim and from Dan and the half tribe of Manasseh, 10 cities. Then there's the Geshronites received lot from the clan of the tribe of Issachar from Asher and from Naphtali in the north end of the land, from the half-tribe of Manasseh in Bashan, 13 cities. The Miriites, according to their clans, received from the tribe of Reuben, the tribe of Gan, and the tribe of Zebulon, 12 cities. These cities, and by their pasture lands, the people of Israel gave by lot to the Levites, as the Lord had commanded through Moses. And then we get the list of them. Now, just one thing worth noting is um, that of these 48 cities, they're divided pretty evenly between, between the tribes with one small ex- exception. Almost every tribe has four Levitical cities. And then there's, there's one that has six, and then there's one that has two. But for the most part, it's an average of four per city. They're evenly distributed across the tribe's territory. Okay. But here we're given the list uh, verse nine of these cities out of the tribe of the people of Judah and the tribe of the people of Simeon. They gave the following cities mentioned by name, which went to the descendants of Aaron, one of the clans of the Kohathites who belonged to the people of Levi, Levi, since the lot fell to them first. They gave them Kiriath Arba, Arba being the father of Anak, that is Hebron. Remember that's Caleb's city. in the hill country of Judah along with the pasture lands around it but the fields of the city and its villages had been given to Caleb the son of Jephna as his possession to the descendants of Aaron the priest they gave Hebron the city of refuge for the manslayer with its pasture lands Libno with its pasture lands Jatir with its pasture lands Eshtimoah (coughs) with its pasture lands Holon with its pasture lands Debir with its pasture lands Ain with its pasture lands now why does it keep uh, mentioning the pastures here If you go back to the words of Moses, he gives them not only the city itself, but a specific measurement of land around the city in a big circle where they can raise their own livestock. That's the pasture land that's being talked about here, okay? Uh, Verse 17, then, uh, well, I guess we can read 16 just for good pleasure. Ain with its pasture lands, Jeddah with its pasture lands, Beth Shemesh with its pasture lands, nine cities out of these two tribes. Then out of the tribe of Benjamin, Gibeon with its pasture lands, Gaba with its pasture lands, Anaoth with its pasture lands, Alman with its pasture lands, four cities. The cities of the descendants of Aaron, the priests, were in all thirteen cities, with their pasture lands. As to the rest of the Kohathites, belonging to the Kohathite clan of Levites, the cities allotted to them were out of the tribe of Ephraim. To them were given Shechem, the city of refuge for the manslayer with its pasture lands in the hill country of Ephraim, Gezer with its pasture lands. Kibzaim with its pasture lands, Beth Horon with its pasture lands, four cities. Out of the tribe of Dan, Eltki with its pasture lands, and Gibbethon with its pasture lands, Aijalon with its pasture lands, Gathrimen with its pasture lands, four cities. And out of the half-tribe of Manasseh, Tanakh with its pasture lands, and Gathrimen with its pasture lands, two cities. So there's one of the exceptions. Manasseh only has two, where everyone else averages four. The cities of the clans of the rest of the Kohathites were 10 in all with their pasturelands. and to the Gershonites one of the clans of levites were given out of the half tribe of manasseh Golan and Bashan with its pasture lands the city of refuge for the manslayer and beth with its pasture lands two cities and out of the tribe of Issachar Kishron with its pasture lands Deerbath with its pasture lands Darmath with its pasture lands Enganim with its pasture lands four cities and out of Asher Michel with its pasture lands Abdon with its pasturelands. lands Hektha with its pasture lands, and Rehob with its pasture lands, four cities. And out of the tribe of Naphtali, Kadesh and Galilee with its pasture lands. The city of refuge for the manslayer, Hamath Dor with its pasture lands, and Kartan with its pasture lands, three cities. The cities of several clans of the Gershonites were in all 13 cities with their pasture lands. Then we get the last allotment here to the rest of the Levites. The Mariite clan were given out the tribes of Zebulon. Jochenem with its pasture lands, with its pasture lands, Dimna with its pasture lands, Nahal with its pasture lands, four cities, and out of the tribe of Reuben, Bezer with its pasture lands, Jahaz with its pasture lands, Kademoth with its pasture lands, and Mephilath with its pasture lands, four cities. Out of the tribe of Gad, Ramoth and Gilead with its pasture lands, the city of refuge for the Manslayer, Manahem with its pasture lands, Heshbon with its pasture lands, with its pasture lands, four cities in all. As for the cities of the several Mariite clans, that is, the remainder of the clans of the Levites, those allotted them were in all, twelve cities. Verse 41 tells us, The city of the Levites in the midst of the possession of the people of Israel were in all, forty-eight cities with their pasture lands. These cities each had their pasture land around it, so it was with all these cities. Now why is that so repetitive? Because it's a direct fulfillment of the command given in Numbers 35, verse 6, that they were to give 48 cities in all to the Levites with their pasture lands across the 12 tribes' inheritance, okay? And so once again, we see another mark of obedience of Joshua the leader and of the people of Israel in fulfilling the words of Moses. And now in verses 43 through 45, we get the uh, summary of the entire book of Joshua. If Joshua has a key verse, as much as it, ex- as it would be exciting to draw it from the commander of the Lord's army in chapter five uh, or even Joshua's great speech in chapter 22, this is it. This is the clear heart of the book. Notice as we read it how it summarizes what we've seen as the content and the primary themes of the book. Thus, the Lord gave to Israel all the land that he swore to give to their fathers and they took possession of it And they settled there and the Lord gave them rest on every side, just as he'd sworn to their fathers. Not one of all their enemies had withstood them for the Lord had given all their enemies into their hand. Not one word of all the good promises that the Lord had made to the house of Israel had failed. All came to pass. Okay. Now the author is fully aware of the places that Israel falls short what he wants us to understand, though, is that God has not, right? That when it comes to God's promises, he promised them a land, and they have it. He promised them rest from their enemies, and they have it. He, uh, he, promised, um, he promised many things, and it says here again in verse 45, not one word of all the good promises that the Lord had made to the house of Israel had failed. All came to pass. One of the great summary statements of the entire Old Testament, and I would suggest even of the New Testament, um, is when Paul says, even when we are faithless, he remains faithful. And if you read the history of Israel, that's what you see. You see a faithful God with a faithless people. So here, all of the promises that he's given Abraham and Isaac and Jacob All of the promises that he's made when he's called Moses and said, I will use you to bring a people out and I will bring them to the land that I had promised their ancestors. All of the promises that he's made to Joshua saying, I am with you, being strong and courageous. All of them have been fulfilled. Every one of them has come to pass. Now, I want us to read these words through two lenses tonight. First, through the original audience we know because of that repeated refrain throughout the book of Joshua of as it is to this day, that this book is written looking back on this history. And so here, the great message that the author has for the audience initially reading it is, God is the same then as now. The land that God has promised still lays before us. The victory that he has promised is still ours to obtain. The rest that he has promised is still ours to enter into. God is a keeper of promises. But I think there's a second ray that we should read this tonight because it's not just true that for Israel, God is the same yesterday, today, and forever. It's true for us. And I want to tell you this tonight. That if your biography is ever written, this is the most, most appropriate final sentences that could fill your biography. And it's going to be different. God hasn't promised you a land in the Middle East. He probably hasn't called you to do battle with his enemies and given you victory and rest from them. But in the large picture of your life, wherever it is that God is taking you, all of the great and precious promises as the New Testament Uh, refers to them. The one that Paul says are all yes and amen in Jesus. God will fulfill them all. And so the advantage we have as Christians, the one that the original audience of Joshua had here, who have tasted and seen these things, who are living fruit because they woke up They were even born into the land that God had promised their ancestors. Miraculously brought out. Just like that original audience, we know the end of the story while we're still in the middle of it. Like many of you, I've read the book of Revelation. And God wins. Okay. And so I want to read these words again, and I want you to mentally edit them amend them, if you will, to the end of your own story tonight, and then we'll pray. Thus the Lord gave to Israel all the land that he swore to give their fathers, and they took possession of it, and they settled there. And the Lord gave them rest on every side, just as he had sworn to their fathers. Not one of all their enemies had withstood them, for the Lord had given all their enemies into their hands. Not one word all the good promises that the Lord had made to the house of Israel had failed. All came to pass. Let's pray. Father, the New Testament tells us that without faith it is impossible to please God. The New Testament tells us that hope that can be seen is not hope at all. And you've called us, and you've put us into this life. And the primary calling you've give us, given us, is to live a life of faith, of taking you at your word, and making our decisions, and reforming our attitude and even making great sacrifice as if your words are true. And we know, like Paul says in Romans chapter 5, that this hope will not disappoint. So I thank you for that, Lord. And I pray that it would make us ambitious and expectant in doing your will. That we would step out, into the land that you've given us to conquer, into the places that you've given us to follow in your footsteps, that we would step out hearing your voice and doing your will and knowing that you will prove yourself faithful. Thank you that you are the faithful God, the keeper of promises, the one who has declared the end from the beginning. and the one who has called us to believe. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Amen. Have a good night.